From Glitch HQ on Riverside Avenue in totally real, definitely not virtual Minneapolis, this is Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. I'm Martha McGarry, and I make nice games. I'm Stephen McGregor, and I make nice games. And I'm Martha Croy, I too make nice games. In this episode, we discuss the similarities and differences of asset creation and VR environment with local developer Krista McCullough. And so, if everyone is ready, let's start. Hello. Hello. Hey. <laughs> so, how are you doing? Good. How are you? It feels so official after the music plays. Oh. <laughs> we try not to be too proper here. I don't. I don't think we're proper. Are we we are not. <laughs> no. Were you here? We've for never the been last accused. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's okay. never really been a description of the show. <laughs> so, Krista, welcome to the show. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and why we thought it was a good idea to have you here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll explain your intentions. Um, so I'm essentially a tech artist. I'm still trying to decide like what I sit in the games industry, but I do a lot between both code and working with assets. And currently I work for Pixelfar. I'm doing a lot of their VR development and I've had a hand in everything from like 3D asset creation to just doing entirely code. So mm-hmm. I feel like I've had a good hand on almost every part of VR that I have a really good understanding of it all. That's awesome. So, so you're like the glue between the programmers and the artists. Pretty much. Now that we have a full team, because originally it was just me and two other guys who were working there mm-hmm. on the VR projects. And then we got our director and it kind of just bloomed from there. Mm-hmm. So now we have two dedicated game engineers and then. I can kind of fill in any roles that they can't do. And yeah. now that we've lost our, like our team's kind of shifted in the last year. So we've kind of lost a couple people. So I'm taking over some 3d work. Yeah. Cool. Nice. So that's a, like a, something comes through the door and it's like a panic. Like how do we do this? And then that's how you learn new things. Yeah. That's actually been my entire time there, which has been really nice. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Cause I got the job when I was still in college and my program really didn't, focus on what I wanted to be doing in game development so that I had the job at Pixel Farm. It was really filling that gap. Mm-hmm. And Where then, did you go to school? I went to the Minneapolis College of Art and Design, ah. and I have a degree in web and multimedia environments. Oh. But a lot of my last two years, like when I wanted to get into game design, it was all very much spent in like installation and performance art, and that's mm-hmm. really wasn't me. Yeah. yeah it's, like, <laughs> it's an art school. Yeah. Very pr- proud of that fact, too. So, yeah. <laughs> Like there's a lot of amazing artists that come out of there and you mm-hmm. learn a lot of great things from just pe- being around the people, but I just didn't have the time at college to like put into what I wanted to do. Yeah. So yeah, every like uh, one of my coworkers actually kind of pointed that out to me. He's like, yeah, he's like, you know how to Google things and figure things out. He's like, if there's an issue, you'll, you'll get it figured out. I'm like, yep. Like I told them I was like maybe a five out of 10 in programming skills when they hired me on and they're like, cool. You're our developer. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's gotta so. be extremely useful since like, VR development is still kind of new right now. Mm-hmm. That's uh, I I haven't done a lot of VR work, but like I imagine that like it's very interesting and new and stuff. I think it really helped me that when I started learning how to like actually make very put together experiences and actually make like a full application that it was in VR because I learned how to really make things optimized, and that's mm. what my entire baseline was learning. And now that I know how to make things really optimized. I can go and make things a little bit bigger. Oh, but it okay. still has left this like weird, like even just making regular games for like a 2D screen. Yeah. I'll make something like, wait, 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 is that too many polys? Like, <laughs> can they handle that? I'm like, yes, I'm fine. Like, I don't have to run this on a headset. Yeah, so. yeah I know that uh, the frame rate is very important in VR, right? Yep. 
what kind of what kind of processes do you do to like optimize your? Um, a lot of it just sits within. A lot of what, like what I've been doing is more like in the assets themselves for any of the three D models, mm-hmm. making sure like you have limited polys. Sure, making sure every like if you have a lot of meshes in the scene, like combining as many as you can into one mesh because then it only has to be drawn once. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing like how many materials are running in a screen, um, really like what you're doing with those materials. We'd worked on a project where almost all of our billboards were motion graphics. Mm-hmm. So that was definitely um, how do we get this to run really cleanly? Because you like when we first started getting them working, you could see like hitches and when they were running. Oh, sure. oh no. So, <laughs> but I think that's just the entirety of like VR process is just making something and then like whittling it back to figure out like what you need to fix. Yeah. So it's like hems in your scope creep because mm-hmm. literally the game won't run. If <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. When you're working on like a 2D game or just a, a, a traditional 3D game, you add things to it until it starts choking and yeah. then you pull back. Right. But you have some time before it starts choking with VR. It happens right away. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, we had um. For one of our last titles through Pixel Farm, we had done a soccer game for Invisalign and we were running custom physics on the ball. And so our game engineer, it's like he did an amazing job on how the ball feels and like when it kicks and everything. Mm. But we were seeing every now and then it just like chunk the frame rate. We're like, okay, (laughs) gotta fix that. So it just eventually came down to like, I always love looking at VR scenes because any like wall you're never going to see, like if you just scroll out, it's just like this empty void of walls that are just like not built. (laughs) <laughs> and then you get in like, okay, we just built the walls that are facing you. You're fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's all so. a facade. It's more like building theater sets than it is actually building a game. It is. And so it's just, it's always, that was also really hard for me when I was trying to learn how to 3D model. It's like, I want to make these full models that I can use in like a cool game on a 2D surface. I'm like, mm-hmm. I only know how to model for VR right now. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm so afraid to put polys into anything. So like, it might not run like, you're running out of 1070. You're okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like this weird alarm bell. Yeah. I like the way that you put it, that like it was a, that you're like creating a stage really. Cause I guess like, well, with, especially like with phone VR, you're not moving around the space. You're just rotating around it. Right. So mm-hmm. you don't have to really be concerned about uh, the walls or behind the walls because no one's going to see that. Yep. <laughs> That's important. I want to make a game where you have to look through the walls because no one does that. No one wants to stick their head through things. And like I was playing, um, I was playing Job Simulator and to check what I needed from the fridge, like if the fridge had what I wanted, I would just stick my head <laughs> into it, <laughs> um, which was really fun. And I was like, oh man, someone should make a game like that. But now I'm thinking like, oh man, that might actually be hard to do because like, it would require so much more detail. <laughs> yeah. I remember there was one thing I like one of the games that I designed for a workshop in college was have you ever played screen sheet? Uh, yeah. Oh, yes. yeah. So it's like having screen sheet, but in a VR sense. And so it's not like you can see other people's screens. So it's like you are like having to put your head through walls and just like you don't want to move around and things like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've had a lot of people actually bring up where they wanted games where you can put your head through walls because there's been so many VR titles where you put your head through a wall and it just like blurs out or there's a poker game you can play in VR. And if you go to try to look at other people's hands, it like blurs out your screen too. <laughs> That's kind of awesome. Yeah. <laughs> there should be a poker game where you can do that, but you just get caught by the other players, <laughs> right? And you can try to get away with it. Yeah. That'd be actually interesting too, to mm-hmm. see someone's like, you could go and check people's like hands, but maybe if you stay too long and like let them know, like someone's looking at their hand. Yeah. That'd be fun. So I guess sort of related to that, I want to ask a little bit about, cause there's all these uh, constraints you have when you're working with VR and at, at um, Pixel Farm, you're doing a lot of client work. Mm-hmm. And so um, how does the restrictions you have interact with like the client brief and the design of it? 
Like, what's the relationship there? Like, how do you how do you tell a client like, no, we can't render that. <laughs> Maybe we should come up with a more creative or, or, or different solve for this. Um, I think it starts like at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So our director, um, we basically the joke was when we got there is like, you're here to kill people's dreams because we'd always have clients coming to us. Like we want photorealism and this, this and this. We're like, okay, first meeting, we got to kill your dreams. We're sorry. That can't be possible quite yet. But then it's also just like limiting expectations. I think is what our Mm -hmm. biggest job is when it comes to client work, because like job simulator is a very like clean, concise style, but it runs really well. Mm -hmm. And then we've also had, like you see games like the Everest Experience or Everest VR and some of Cloudhead's games are like beautifully done. Like those are almost photoreal. So it's like we have the ability to do photoreal, but it's also limiting their expectations on budget wise. Yeah. So I think it is just like this whole, like there's so many factors when you're trying to create these things and what you have time for. Cause a lot of our deadlines are about three months long. Just oh, for like when we actually get a project in. Yeah. That's real fast. Yeah. And then, just like based on the size of our team, because it is primarily, there's only three of us working consistently on these projects where it's like, we do have to write that in too. Mm -hmm. So, and then we're also finding with VR, there's not a huge budget for it quite yet because a lot of it is experimental. We have a lot of companies coming to us because they want something new. They they can have at these trade shows and something that'll really catch people's eye. And it's been working really well for them, but they just don't quite have the budget for it quite yet. Yeah. And they haven't, it's hard for clients to monetize that content the same way it is uh, video content or other stuff that a, a house like Pixel Farm will do. Yeah. Uh, but they want it because it's novel and new and valuable, but they don't know why or how valuable. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, I'm sure that impacts the budget discussions. It does. It definitely does. And so, I mean, it also helps that we work primarily just in Unity. And so the oh. Unity asset store has been absolutely helpful there. <laughs> so um, a couple of the, a couple of things we've done for 3M, two of them were very, we're about as like photo reels they're possibly going to get with one, like their budget to like what our team size was and what we were capable of. But it actually looked like even in VR, like it was getting pretty close to like actual realism. So, I mean, that's what is really cool is like we can prove we can do that. Mm-hmm. But then it's also talking to the clients and like, you have to buy this computer. So, right. yeah, <laughs> I mean, baseline computer for that's going to be like $1,500 at the point. Mm, yeah. Um, for when we did the Invisalign soccer, that's, at that huge debacle with Coinbase, uh, the coin market completely just destroying GPU prices. Oh, yeah. yeah so yeah. they're like, we have to build four computers, but the GPUs right now are costing upwards of like $1,000. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, it's interesting you're talking about your MCAT experience and all, all you learned there was about installations, but that's what you're doing now. Yeah. Right? <laughs> no, and it's, it was actually great because I started off wanting to, to, wanting to do a lot of installation art when I got there. And mm-hmm. so that's what I focused in primarily. And so I did a couple that I was, like, okay, like I could totally get into the role of this. And then I got into more like you need development. I'm like, no, wait, this is what I want to do. So it's kind of nice. And now that we have like that good balance because I'm making something that is technically installed, but it's just like, it's a lot smaller installation. Yeah. So you, you said that um, the Unity Asset Store has a lot of, does it have a lot of low poly um, assets you can just grab and use? It has a lot of really great like textured assets okay. that are already like set up for just game development in general. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's been really helpful as well as just tools that can help us create a lot better. So we have a 3D modeler in-house who has some experience with um, Unity and like game development. So he's been a huge help when we got this up and running because he was the primary modeler. But he's part of our CG department. And we don't always get his time. Ah, okay. So that was what was hard because it's like he's very knowledgeable in like what he needed to do. Mm-hmm. And if we needed something changed, he knew how to change it. 
And so now we're like transitioning into the how do we have a 3D modeler who we have full time? So ah, okay. That's kind of like what I'm trying to transition into for oh. them. Oh, so cool. That's really exciting stuff. <laughs> what what program do you use to build your models? I originally was working in C4D and C4D. which is Cinema 4D. Oh, okay. And that's I'm unfamiliar with that. It's more of like a motions graphics. Okay. So like 3D. Okay. So it's not going to be the cleanest models that you'll get out of that because it's more used like in its own program. Mm-hmm. And I just recently picked up Maya. Ah, so okay. Cool. Going to industry standards. I have heard of Maya. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Cinema 4D is great for motion graphics. Mm-hmm. And that's about it. Yeah. And that was my first, like I didn't take any modeling class as well as the MCAD because mm-hmm. they required some prereqs I wasn't able to get into. And... Cinema 4D was the one that's like, I went to our media department. I'm like, I want this. They're like, okay. So it was either that. And it's like, you can get Maya for free as a student for three years. Mm-hmm. So that's really accessible, which is nice. But Maya is so daunting. Yeah. And it's like, I opened it up the first couple of times when I was in like high school. I remember getting a laptop that could run in and was like, I have no idea what's happening. I don't even like want to do this right now. This is overwhelming. So I just shut it and just never go back to it. Yeah. And then I found Cinema 4D and I love the UI so much more. And then Maya 2018 had the same UI. So I'm like, okay, uh-huh. now I'll try Maya. <laughs> nice. So really, it wasn't that you weren't like that, that you couldn't understand it. It's that it was dumb and they fixed it. And now, yeah. now it's. <laughs> yeah, no, I think they just, they really simplified down the UI. Yeah. And so I think the one thing, I don't know if they had it in past versions, but it's like, you can change it. Like I want my toolbar to be for like modeling or sculpting or effects. Mm-hmm. And they probably had that in all the other versions of it. But now it just, I feel like I at least know what I'm doing for the most part now. Yeah. So it's a little less daunting. Mm-hmm. And it's also like, a, well, I need to learn this. So suck it up. But <laughs> <laughs> so. right, you're motivated now in a way that you weren't in the past. Mm. Very much so. Right. And you know a lot more now. I do. And it's, I've been modeling things for, we're doing an in-house project right now for just a release for later in October. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing all the 3D models for it. And it's been nice because it's like, okay, you have to make this, you have to make it good. So just do it. And it's not like, I can just like step away and not do it. Yeah. It's like it's very much forcing me to just learn it and learn it as I go, which has yeah. definitely been really helpful. So I think having a like a fire lit behind me is <laughs> way more helpful than just someone being like, oh, go model something. Yeah. Like, no. Yeah. I definitely find that with like tutorials. Uh, every time I try to learn Blender, yeah. uh, which is what you do when you don't have any money um, or a student <laughs> access, um, I, I learn Blender in a weekend and I'm really excited and then I forget it the next weekend because mm. I don't have a reason, like I'm not motivated in the way. But then as soon as I need to know something, then it's like not a problem. Yeah. And it, I'm, sh- I'm always shocked. It surprises me every time. I totally agree there too. That's like when I was learning shaders, like I would do mm-hmm. so much with it. I'm like, yeah, I totally know what I'm doing. And then I'd step away for like a week. I'm like, I have no idea what I did. <laughs> like, what does this line of code mean? Like, how do I get it to do this? And then someone's like, I need this shader to do this. Like, okay, I totally know how to do that. But it's like, leave me to my own devices and I'll just crash and burn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have definitely been similarly motivated at my own job. Like, they'll tell me to do a thing and I'm like, oh, okay, I'll figure it out. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you just got, yeah, you're forced into it. And, but like, it's a good thing because you're learning a lot about it. Yeah. Like when I was originally with the team, it was, I was doing primarily just the code aspect of it. Yeah. And they wanted to do a, um, just like a prototype for a company that we were trying to get their business for. And like, yeah, so have it like, they basically wanted it where we could like grab part of a phone and then pull it out and it like explode. So you could see all the parts inside, oh. but it's like you could grab it and it'd follow your hand. Yeah. And like, yeah, just use like the experimental animation thing from unity. <laughs> and I'm like, sure, that's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I sat there and they're like, 
we need a video of this working by Friday. So oh. I basically just had it set up where it was faked. So it's like, it was just animated doing that and like had my hand follow the animation ah. properly. <laughs> and then I figured out how to do it later, but that was like, that's always the one part I would come back to when I started working at Pixel Farms. Like I remember doing that project and I learned something very new, very quickly. Yeah. So. Yeah, you learn real fast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, there's n- new skills for you, but new things for the industry, like mm-hmm. the VR workflows. Uh, can you talk a little bit about getting it from a model to an asset? Like, what's that process? And, and what's the, what, the, what do you use uh, when you're working with uh, either asset store models or from another model or, or, for, or with your own stuff? Mm-hmm. I think starting off with like asset store models, things that we do buy, mm-hmm. um, a lot of them will probably just like bring in completely as is mm-hmm. and other times for like if you've seen our Luxonos from Pixel Farm which was like more of like this arty project we had a couple animals that we had just bought the models for and then reskinned ourselves mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I wasn't on that project so I'm pretty sure we made <laughs> new textures for it but otherwise yeah a lot of the time we can just bring the model in because it has like the original FBX we can just like bring it back out into Maya and reskin it ourselves if mm-hmm. need be um Otherwise, I think most asset store models we buy as is and we just use as is. Uh, for speaking to like my own process, because I'm not quite sure about my other modeler, mm-hmm. um, I basically I'll just like I'll make start making something, um, and then consistently like have different versions I'm bringing into Unity to check it in Unity. And I know that's been really helpful for me. And a lot of people are like, "You just do it once." I'm like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> for the longest time I could not get Maya to export things at the correct size like I'd have to go into Unity size something up into a cube I'm like okay this cube is the size of what I need and then I'll export that out bring it into my model on top of it and export it back to Unity and it's like one tenth the size I'm like why <laughs> <laughs> and then someone's like just use the game exporter instead of the regular exporter I'm like okay that was the like, easy thing to do <laughs> so I think for me, it's just, it's consistently like I'll start in Unity and I'll size it up to what I want it to be because with VR development specifically, if you make something actual size, like what it is in real life, it mm-hmm. seems small sometimes Yeah. or it seems too big. And so you kind of have to like work with your proportions. So I think for like my workflow specifically, I will go into Unity, I'll make the cube the size that I think it'll work in VR and I'll gray box everything. Yeah. And then I'll just use their FBX exporter, export it out and then just model on top of that in Maya. And then... Once that's like everything is like good to go, that's when I'll start texturing. But a lot of my texturing is like lazy texturing with mm-hmm. quotes around that. <laughs> but um, I use primarily just like gradients and flat colors. And then I'll basically like take these faces, unwrap them, put them on the color that I want. Like I'll just continue to do that. Mm-hmm. So I like the look it is. And I know one day I'm going to have to learn texturing to a greater capacity. But <laughs> <laughs> for right now, I like the look. Well, you know that once you have to learn it, you will. Oh yeah, I know I will. And Be no problem. The CG director at Pixel Farm has been really helpful. He's been sending me videos that I can use yeah. to learn. And he's like, yeah, here you go. If you have any questions, like once you finish these, come find me. I'll get you new ones too. Oh, nice. So I've had a lot of support in learning this, which has been really nice. I, I think that's it. been making it a lot easier than all the other times I've attempted to learn Maya. Mm-hmm. But I think, yeah, for me entirely, it's just, it's such an iterative process, like making like a model into an asset. So, mm-hmm. and then like once it's in Unity, it's basically like just make the materials, make it the prefab that you need it to be. So mm-hmm. a lot of what I make, what I have been having to make though, has just been completely condensed into just the model. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned that the sort of institutional knowledge that pixel farm has, 
it's definitely been helpful that we have video and motion graphics in house because mm-hmm. we're having a lot of clients come to us like we want 360 video it's like cool we actually have people in the house that can do that yeah. too so it was just nice i think that's why they picked up vr is because we had such a niche that we were filling in so many different aspects so like mm-hmm. well we can have someone from everyone kind of like tap in and we can make a vr experience with it so that's definitely been helpful mm-hmm. um our last we had one project a couple months ago for a football thing where we would need all the motion graphics so we finally like had something our full design team could come hop on and work with and we're having our design team work on something right now and that we haven't had them touch a lot of other projects so yeah. it's been very helpful because i know so little about video and motion graphics so having people who know it and can like take that burden off us has been really great. Yeah. It sounds like the, every project you, the team does, you can leverage more of each other's knowledge. Oh yeah. I think it's been like, as the projects have been ramping up over the years, we've definitely been seeing that, which has been really great. We have a producer from our like film and video side who's been stepping in. He's been getting some of the clients for us because they want film and video things, but Mm -hmm. with a VR aspect. So you've been working on some other stuff besides, um, pixel farm stuff can you talk a little bit about like what you do outside of your job well i was contracted with space mace so i was helping them with juggernauts and that'll be released october 11th so that'll be really cool because i was i got to help out for about three months on that one kind of just like filling in odd places for their designer as well as other odd places for their developers (laughs) so (laughs) that was nice kind of got to work in the ui got to work on the code Mm -hmm. got to export assets for an entire night it was great (laughs) (laughs) Other than that, I actually haven't done a lot of work outside of Pixel Farm. Oh, graduated about a year ago, and then I've been working in the industry for about three years. I did about a year at the U of M working for their uh, interactive visualization lab, and that was working with like PhD researchers and their VR equipment. Oh, that's that's like where I got my start in the VR. Yeah, (laughs) Um, but otherwise, I think I got out of college and still very confused, like what I want to do with my life. So I just like really took time for myself these last years, and it's. Finally to the point, like I'll go home, like I'll model things now, which is nice. And I'm starting to like pick up and do like game things outside of work, but mm-hmm. it definitely took a while. It was just, I was focusing, focusing pretty much just entirely on pixel farm. Mm-hmm. So, cool. Well, it sounds like you spent all that time getting knowledge on the design side and the development side. And so do you find, it sounds like a lot of that was a necessity. You needed to know a little in one ear and the other. But do you, do you have a preference? Do you like having that balance of both? I definitely prefer the balance. Mm-hmm. Um, like, by both my game engineers at work, like, if they need to make something small of an asset, they can definitely do it. Yeah. They have a knowledge of, like, Photoshop or GIMP and things like that. So it definitely doesn't prevent them. But I think having the knowledge of basically being able to step into any role is more of, like, a... It also just, it just makes me feel, like, a little bit more, like, sure of my abilities and so it's like i don't have like entirely mastered abilities on any one part but i know like if a team needs me to do something somewhere i'm like yep i can totally do that so it's also just helped in the fact it's like i can troubleshoot everything Mm -hmm. so it's never like i'm just sitting there like out in the middle of a water without a paddle i'm like well i don't know how to fix this and i don't know someone who can fix this so it's been helpful and then surprisingly having a background in code has helped a ton with Maya because you can script a lot of commands into it. Oh, oh, cool. Like, okay. So I at least understand like when someone's like, Oh, just put this Python command in. Like I can read that. (laughs) (laughs) What sort of things does, um, can you script? I'm not super far into it, but you can just, uh, there's like a small console. That's like, if you want one thing I've been doing with like just regrouping curves. And so 
part of my process for what I've been doing lately is like making stuff in Illustrator and then bringing it into Maya as curves. And that way, like this is probably like the most cumbersome process. So if there's any other 3D modelers listening, like don't laugh <laughs> at me. <laughs> but I just could not get a handle on the Bezier curves in Maya. So I'm like, I can do it in I can do it in Illustrator just fine. So I'll make them Illustrator, put them into Maya, and then I just want to like reparent all the curves. And so I can just type a quick command to reparent everything to one thing instead of having oh, to go cool. through and do it all. So that's awesome. It's interesting you describe that process because a lot of motion graphics work uses a similar kind of mix of scripting and and design for it. So you probably know more about that than you think you do because it's not that different. Yeah, like I've never really touched motion graphics, so I couldn't talk to that at all. But yeah, no, it's I know my process is probably very cumbersome for like like <laughs> people who are very used to 3D modeling. And I always want to ask my 3D modelers down in the CD department, like, can you just screen record yourselves modeling? Like, I, just, <laughs> I want to see like how slow I actually really am compared to you. Mm. And so it's always funny too, because it's like, I was laying out just something, trying to have them equally spaced. And someone's like, oh, there's a command for that. You just do this, this, and this. I'm like, well, I like doing it by myself. <laughs> it's like, so. Yeah, there's that. There's efficiencies you learn and then don't bother with mm-hmm. because you're yeah. using that time to think or something. Like there's like reasons you have habits, mm-hmm. and they don't. You don't always have to be the best, most efficient worker to 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 do your best work. Like I just think that's been like one of the huge biggest barriers for me. Like trying to learn this too. It's like I know this is a very, like not really. I'm not gonna say that. It is a very complicated skill. I'm not going to belittle that in any way. Uh-huh. But it is. It's complicated to learn like all the niches of like how to make a model like perfectly set for game development. I feel like that was like the one thing always keeping me about because for like CG, you can have as many polys as you want. I feel because you're just going to like, it's just going to be rendered, Mm -hmm. but you need to have like no N-gons. You want all polygons like, Oh crap, no triangles either, but sometimes you're going to need triangles. So there's exceptions. And then (laughs) you got to make sure things are like bending well. So like when they have a rig in them, like you have to have your seams all covered. I'm like, Oh my goodness. It was just, there's so much coming at you, but that now, like my thinking did change like recently with that, mm-hmm. like how you brought up. Um, it doesn't matter if like, you're most efficient, like if you're doing it and you're making them, it's good. Yeah. I think that's where I'm at right now. I'm like, I don't care if I'm efficient with this yet. Like <laughs> I'm making it. I mean, it's always better to get it done quicker, but like getting it done is the important part. Yeah. I'm like, right? And you'll learn speed and time. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's just been like, I had to write that on a post and now I'm like, just do it. Like yeah. just make it. <laughs> and you'll learn from this one. And I definitely have like, I was having an issue with, Maya crashes every time there's new NVIDIA driver available. And of I course, know when course. Maya starts crashing, <laughs> there's a new NVIDIA driver available. Like and not even that you've downloaded, it's just available? Yeah, there's a new yeah. one available. <laughs> because Maya's crashing consistently. For some odd reason, my autosaves were not working and it was just making me upset. So oh, I had no. to remodel something like twice. But uh. by the third time, it was so quick to model it. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I know the qu- like, I know the easiest ways to do this now. Like, <laughs> You did some iteration without really intending to. <laughs> yeah. And I just have like, I don't get to see my last iteration. So I'm hoping this one is the best one. So yeah. <laughs> That's the story you're going to tell anyway. <laughs> yeah. It's like, this is definitely what I was intending entirely. <laughs> do do you also do the rigging in and uh, some animations at all? Or you um, said that you had done a little bit in, in Unity. Um, I've done like basic animations in Unity just okay. because it doesn't require a lot of the rigs. Sure, yeah. Um, I have started kind of just learning rigging on my own, but then that's an entire beast in itself. That seems so scary. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there was um, there's a girl on Twitter named 
Joyce Minions, and she does just amazing shader work. And that's how I started getting into like actually wanting to 3D model because she was just making things so easily. She's like, yeah, here's a really quick tutorial on how to make like a base for a humanoid so you can like work with it in other ways. Here's how to make a base for a dragon head. Oh. And it's just like everything is based around the game that she's making. Mm-hmm. But she just makes it so accessible in a sense. It's like I, she's the only person I follow on Patreon right now. And she's completely worth the money each month yeah. because all of the stuff she's been putting out. It's like, and she has her Twitch as well. And she's just like, here's how I make my rigs. And mm. it's like, okay, this seems a lot more accessible now that I'm seeing someone just like casually. She's like, I taught this myself, so this may not be the best, but here's how I do it. So she's definitely been just following her work has really been helpful in learning like just the basics. Oh, that uh, that sounds really good. Cause I, I think that scaring me the most from like even attempting rigging is like just starting it just <laughs> seems scary. If you get the bones wrong, you're, you're person can't walk correctly or something i don't know yeah no it's like i was never interested in animation or 3d modeling in college for whatever reason and then something switched in like the last year like wait no this is really cool like i wasted four years (laughs) (laughs) and it wasn't a waste but i wish i would have done more animation there Mm -hmm. or just like i'm still in contact with some of the animation teachers so i know i can be like hey how do you rig things yeah and they'd probably help me out but it would have been more helpful to have someone there for years to just like kind of guide me along in it. And can you use Maya to rig and animate? Yep. Oh, okay, cool. So. I am unfamiliar with. I I know what Maya is, but I'm unfamiliar <laughs> with the tool itself. Yeah. Well, some some of the barrier to some of this knowledge is that the tools are a little harder to come by. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you have like Unity, which is available for free, mm-hmm. like, and it has its own model that makes it free, but like you know, uh, Maya can't be given away, right. and yeah, and a lot of these tools can't be. But then it makes it hard to get and share knowledge, right? Yeah, actually, that's come up in a conversation recently. I was talking with someone. If you've seen The Dragon Prince on Netflix? I haven't yet. Okay, so it's by the creators of The, the Last Avatar, uh, The Last Airbender. Mm-hmm. And for some odd reason, the animation is just very, like, chunky. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. And so, like, a lot of us notice it within the first episode. It's like, every, like, the background is, like, animating nicely, but the characters are animating and just, like, you can tell there's frames missing oh. or it's, just, like, it's not working super well. And that's, I've read that's deliberate. It's a 3D modeled sh- uh, show that's meant to look like a hand-drawn. Yep. And so they they purposely drop these frames to make it feel anime-like. See, and that's so weird to me because I feel like anime and, like, animated cartoons are so fluid mm-hmm. that as soon as I saw this in a 3D model, it just looked off. Yeah, I don't, the reaction I've heard from others has been kind of bad. Yeah, and it's like, I love the shader work. I love the cartoon look and feel to it. Mm-hmm. I think it's like the show has some really great positives aside from the weird drop frames. And I was talking with someone about that and they had brought up like with 2D animation, there's so much online you can find about it. And honestly, it's like you make a flip book, you're learning 2D animation. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. But learning these 3D animation tools, like how to do hair effects and how to do cloth effects yeah. and water and just how to 3D model something that animates correctly because with your rig, you have to worry about like our polygons going to like stretch the correct way. Right. And you just don't find that as often. And it's like, I think that was also one of my biggest issues was I learned a ton off of Udemy. Like I have so many courses. I probably sit on there like once a weekend. I'll just like sit down and go through a couple of courses, but there's so little that are like actually comprehensive on 3D modeling yeah. and 3D animation mm-hmm. that don't include you having to buy like ZBrush or yeah. So I definitely think 3D still has a buried entry that's so high. Right. So, Yeah, a lot of it is tool specific. And so it's hard to come up with like a tutorial that's just general concepts. Whereas you can buy a book on 2D animation and with general concepts. Yeah. And that's all you need to know. 
that you can figure out, you know, what pencil and paper to buy or which tool to draw in. But that's not where that's not the tough part. Yeah. But for this, for 3D, that is the tough part. It very much is. It's like was it the animator's handbook? It's mm-hmm. you just buy that and you literally have everything that you'll need for 2D animation just mm-hmm. at your hands. Mm-hmm. But I think what's been really hard for learning just the 3D work process for me is like I think my final goal, like working in this industry, I really want to work towards doing uh, VFX and environment design. But a lot of like the environment and just like asset creation pipelines for these bigger companies are you make it in Maya and then you take it into a sculpting software. You can either sculpt in Maya or you you kind of you usually bring it to like ZBrush. And then once you have everything done in ZBrush, you'll bring it back into Maya to retopologize it. And then you have to bring it into like Substance Painter if you want to do like something that mm. is realistic. And so it's just this huge pipeline of all these really expensive programs. Yeah. It's like, and I don't think like my company hasn't bought licenses because like we don't have a huge need for them quite yet. So it's trying to like find my way around these things. And so it's also like, I want to learn ZBrush. I would love to learn ZBrush and the free trial is like 40 days. So I'm like, I need 40 <laughs> days where I'm doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To get the most out of this free trial. Uh, I will give you a, a tip and for our listeners also, there's a, a an application called Sculptress, which is like ZBrush, but free because it's an alpha and was abandoned and is in fact owned by the same. Now the company was bought by the same company that makes ZBrush, but it's still abandonware and it is given away for free. It's not as comprehensive. It's terribly buggy and the UI is garbage, but it has a very similar. So if you want to learn the, the style of, of ZBrush sculpting and don't have, you know, two, uh, like 8 million nickels to rub together <laughs> <laughs> to buy a, a license for it. Uh, Sculptress. Uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. But okay. that's, a, that's been a fun one. I've done that for 3D printing because it doesn't matter how many polys, right, for that either. <laughs> oh, gosh, what did I use for 3D printing? It's like Z something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It was a terrible program as well. <laughs> I feel like this is abandoned where, but MCAD's like, this is what you're going to use for our 3D printers. Yeah. Like, this is terrible. My, <laughs> <laughs> uh, boyfriend's dad does a lot of 3d printing and um he has complained about like every, he's tried like all these different what programs and he complains about most of them so probably <laughs> yeah i when i was doing 3d printing for a project in college i someone had modeled it in maya and then given it to me and then when i brought it into the program to get it set up for the machine to actually run it it said it came in at the size of a football field. I'm like, oh wow! And the guy's like, oh, it always says that. You're fine. I'm like, that shouldn't be normal. Yeah. <laughs> what if I like? What if one time it actually does try to print it at the size of a football field? Like, where is like, where do we end up with this? <laughs> you just get a giant block of uh, 3D model. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much just a solid block of solid like block. filament. Yeah. <laughs> get enough of those, and you can put it together. Yeah. <laughs> It's split up into 2,000 pieces. Yeah. And you were even describing that in uh, the workflow with um, from Maya to Unity, just scale and just all the little fiddly settings you got to manage with all that stuff, right? Yeah. And it's when I was trying to learn how to like get it from Maya back into Unity, I would always like, I'd model my cubes. So it's like I was trying to model everything around the size of the car we were using. So I'm like, okay, I made a cube the size of the car, brought it into Maya, built around that. I'm like, everything looks good. And then I brought it back from Maya to Unity, and it's like everything is like 0.01 the size. I'm like, okay, so back in the, like Maya, I'm like, okay, no, put this up to meters. Now everything is 10 times the size. I'm like, oh, I wow. just need that one. Like, why is it either 0.01 or 10? <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. Like, I feel bad too because I started learning 3D modeling with Google SketchUp where oh, you can yeah. just say like, I want this to be two meters and it does it. 
You can probably do this in Maya. So for all the 3D modelers just cringing right now, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't learned that yet. I remember building just houses in like most of my sets I build in Google SketchUp and then bring into VR. I'm like, okay, it's the correct size. I didn't need to do much for this. (laughs) SketchUp is mainly an architecture program, right? Yep. Yeah, I'm familiar. I, I used to do some, when I studied mechanical engineering, I used to use some 3D models or 3D modeling programs like uh, Autodesk Inventor and stuff. Um, and yeah, it's very much like you put in your number and it'll give you the exact number. And that's kind of nice. But like, that's why like 3D modeling, like for artistic purposes, feels so different to me is because like it's not like precise. Yeah. It's not, not supposed to be as precise. <laughs> I had, um, I was exposed to Autodesk CAD when I was in high school, so ah. like our engineering classes. And that is, yeah, very different. Mm. Like I need a circle this size and then put these things on it so it's a cog. But yeah, then you get into mine. That's just a whole new world. Yeah. Do you think, because, so um, I tried Maya back in, when I was a kid at a camp and it went very badly. Um, the poor teacher, he thought it was going to like, we're going to learn Maya in a week with all these <laughs> eight-year-olds. That was oh. not happening. Um <laughs> But uh, but now I've been messing around with like um, Google Blocks and stuff. Um, do you think that like people will start making assets in VR for VR, or do you see any future for that? I do actually. There's been a couple games that have actually had a lot of their assets made entirely in VR um, with Oculus's Quill and Medium. Oh, cool! People have done it because then you can export the actual FBXs of the exact size. So people have definitely done that, and I definitely enjoy Google Blocks. We were playing around with it for a while. We were just making like stupid things. We remade the hot dog meme. Nice. But it's like it comes out like in a model that you can definitely work with. It's like if you're working in VR and you like you know how big you want it to be, it's like you can just size the box up and then like block it in and then just export that out to Maya. So I definitely see that being something very useful in the next couple of years. Because I just I always remember thinking to myself, like if I could be in VR and doing like a sculpting program like ZBrush, I think it would be ten times easier for me. Because I feel like I'd have that haptic feedback. Yeah. So I definitely think that's up and coming. Yeah. The problem I have with 3D modeling is the is the sketching, drawing, designing of it all. The sort of tweaking and adjusting, like I'm used to that kind of workflow with software, but the actual like broad brush build it like is difficult in, in, in a lot of 3D programs. But yeah, to have like a rough draft that you just sculpt in the real world and then bring it in, that's, that sounds like a really good workflow. Yeah, and so I remember at the Global Game Jam like three years ago at this point, mm-hmm. um, one of the people we were working with, she had never 3D modeled much herself. And she's like, yeah, she's like, the easiest thing she found for herself was actually drawing it just from like front side view and then bring, popping those in and then just mm. like kind of like just modeling to those pictures. I'm like, okay, cool. It was always in the back of my mind. I just started doing that like a couple weeks ago. I'm like, holy crap, changed my world. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, this is how you actually get things to look correct, right? And so then I've also just been learning a bunch of other like styles of modeling where people, um, I had to make the Nintendo Zapper for yeah. one of our oh. projects. So I basically just like took a plane and then like modeled every part and then extruded it out. I'm like, oh, so that's how people do that. <laughs> And then uh, Mike Black on Twitter was talking about uh, modeling with splines where he basically just like he had a human and he had to make him a shirt. So he just like modeled splines around where he wanted and then just filled in the spines He's like, boom, I have a shirt. I'm like, oh, like that's also a different way to model. So huh. I think like seeing other people's like styles of how they model has definitely helped me too. Because I'm like, 
it doesn't make me feel as bad that I'm like, everything starts as a cube. I'm like, I need this cube to be something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess because there's so many different styles, there's so many different ways to approach it. And it can be more approachable than it first seems. Mm-hmm. You just have to figure out that there's not just one way of doing it. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I think that was definitely my biggest issue with this. It's like, I feel like there's a very specific way that you need to do everything. There's mm-hmm. a very specific way everything needed to look. And then I started watching other like, modelers on youtube I'm like oh no that's all at the door like <laughs> like everyone does what they want so. yeah the, the more you learn a tool the more you know you can do whatever you want with it but it's hard to teach a tool that way because mm-hmm. you want to give someone something to make or some something to actually accomplish you don't just want to like run through all the settings but in fact that's the knowledge you need but it's the experience that really brings the rest of it yeah and when I first started modeling, I remember a teacher just like on the offhand explained to me, he's like, you usually only want to use like one cube to make something. So I was literally sitting there trying to make like entire buildings out of one cube. Oh. And then I'm realizing like I watched other people like they just like bring in another cube and place it there. I'm like, you can do that. <laughs> like, that's okay. So Right. And that advice was probably trying to be helpful, but didn't realize that you took it as like a directive. Yeah. It's yeah. like, this is my entire like, that was the line. It's like, here's all of my, uh, here's a small line. Like, here's me. And like, I'm not stepping over that line to like explore the rest of my, I'd be like, I'm using more than one cube. It's wrong. Um, and I know that you had said earlier that you uh, are not great at UI design, but I wanted to talk to you about that. <laughs> Give me a little bit of insight on it. I was curious, like the whole workflow on that and specifically like specific to VR. In VR, you really have to think about how do you teach someone? Because a lot of the time it's like, it's funny. Like when I put like an older person into VR, they expect like a 2D, just UI, like things they can click, things they can touch. But for kids, they remember like, oh, I've got 360 degrees. Like, so your UI now has a third dimension and you have to think about that too. And how is your UI telling people like what they can do? I think that's been my biggest issue. It's like, you can have a lot of words on screen for 2D things, but you can't have words on screen for VR because they can't read them half the time. Mm -hmm. And you have to think about as well, like how do you teach people about VR in the same right? So it's like, we're so ingrained with 2D uh, UI design, like between our phones, between games we play, between like computers, everything. Like, you know, if like you touch this or it's like you find the three bars, like that's going to be a menu. Yeah. Three dots, that'll probably be a menu as well. If you long hold, that'll also be a menu. <laughs> <laughs> but in VR, it's like, you know, three dimensions. So one that works really well, I think, um, Cloudhead Games, uh, Starseed, The Calling, The Gallery. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I've played that. So it's like your backpack. Like you can take your backpack off and that's how you see everything that you have. You can put things back in your backpack. Mm-hmm. Or um, Fantastic Contraption has that too. It's like you need a pole, go behind that shoulder. If you need a wheel, go behind your other shoulder. Oh. And it's like how does like how does your UI now evolve with not only it's not going to be in front of the person, it's actually is the person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, fascinating. And then... On another layer for that, a lot of what we do at Pixel Farm is like really concise, like two to three minute experiences for our clients. And so our UI has to be clean enough to also teach them within like 20 seconds how yeah. they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. And so it's like alchemy is hardcore. They will only ever use one button on that controller and everything is done with the trigger. And that's a really smart thing because trying to teach someone a new medium, a new game, an entirely new controller mm-hmm. and you can't have 2D things sitting there telling them because they can't see outside of their headset. Right. Like there is, there's just so many more factors now that you have to really think about. And the human factor is wild. So yeah, you will never 
there's one way to press an A button, but that human might like do everything else completely differently. <laughs> I've speaking of the text thing, I was reading an article recently that um a lot of deaf players have been having a hard time because with VR games, um, because they don't have most of them don't have like captions because you can't read the captions very well. And so they've been trying to figure out ways to like make the text bigger or somehow make it not covering every up everything that's happening, but also allow them to know what's going on without the sound and, or like having UI that is intuitive enough to know without any like audio directions. Yeah, actually there's a game that had worked to fix that. I can't think of the name of it right now, but a small mouse that you're following around. Her name is Quill. She oh, yeah, signed yeah, yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so they actually had a deaf, or not a deaf player, but someone who knew ASL in the game, like signing to you, like what you mm-hmm. need to be doing. So it's like you could hear, but as well you could see. And that was, I don't remember the artist who did it either, but I remember him going on Twitter and being like, this was a problem. Here, I fixed it. <laughs> this is how you can do this. It just, it takes a bit more because you now have to animate. Yeah, <laughs> right. so much more. <laughs> what was great about that is that it solved a problem, but also was an additional character piece. Yeah. So it was all together. It wasn't, it, you know, it, it, it was a thing for everybody, even though it solved a specific problem for a certain subset of players. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. And it was also done just incredibly well. It's really fun to watch just like small snippets of the game. Cause like originally what he was showing was just the models. Like, yeah, I made this model sign. And then I think he got into just making the game afterwards. But that was really fun to see. Mm-hmm. Um, of all the headsets, the Vive Pro is probably the only one I've actually been actually able to read a lot of the text in there. So that's also hard that the one headset is like a $1,200 barrier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Plus another, like you need at least a 1080 to run that headset. So you're running like another 1500 on a PC. On the other side, um, mobile VR, um, like a, a Samsung phone or whatever, uh, which is the lowest end VR pretty much. You can get really good readability on that because they use specific techniques because they know your head isn't going to move. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's only because they know that that they're able to actually render that text in a way that works on that on a what is a slightly lower resolution than you get on like a Vive Pro. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's like there's it's the constraints are different for the different formats and there's no real correct way to do the thing you want to do. And it's funny that I actually brought up the Samsung because I've done mm-hmm a VR experience for the Samsung where you actually needed to be able to read the signs. And so it's like, you're in a car driving past them. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) It was a very tough project because we were working with a client who wanted photorealism and we were using the best phone that we could find. Like we're using the Samsung galaxy eight. Yeah. And that was like 4k in quotes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. The pixel density is really high, but compared to a VR headset, it's not. Yeah. And I mean, you include that, like you're sitting in a car and you have signs like way out in front of you coming up. They're going to be pixelated. They're going to be blurry. Like you can play with your map maps all if you want, but you're still <laughs> going to have a very blurry thing as it tries to like figure out pixels as it's coming close like yeah. towards you. So definitely like the stationary VR, you can definitely have text, which has been really nice, but anything moving and then it goes out the window too. So that's oh, yeah. been, text has definitely been really hard for our clients because they want us to have like legal text in and all this other stuff that oh, they can sure. read. But it's like, we can. And it's you can, only literally go- can't read the fine print. <laughs> but it's it's going to be there to save themselves. Like if a legal battle ever comes up. That's true. Point, like you at least put it in there. Is, so. is it possible to put text like always on your screen or like following your head? You can. Um, I find a lot of the times, like I don't have this issue. I don't get 
motion sickness. Okay. But for people who do, anything that follows your head and kind of like pulls you out of like where you're at can sometimes really cause people to like get nausea. Oh. That's also been an issue. Is, okay. Um, you can have HUDs, but usually you don't want them to like be stuck to you. And sometimes a oh. HUD can also make people feel like they're really claustrophobic because there's something like right against their face. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Huh. So that's- they, they discount the other evidence they get of the moving world, and mm-hmm. then it becomes this weird disconnect. Sure. But uh, ironically, you'll hear the advice very frequently that you do want something that sort of stays put mm-hmm. so that you don't, you're, you're, you feel like a, like in a cockpit or something. So you feel you don't get too dissociated, but you're right. Yeah. It can't be anchored to your eyeballs, yeah. like perfectly positioned because it, the, the illusion is broken. Yeah. Then One of our game engineers uh, had made a camera system for us that just follows it with kind of like a slight delay on okay. some of our like spectator cameras. Because if you have someone spectating from the outside in watching VR through the actual first person view, it can make just the spectator really sick because you never mm-hmm. realize how much a head moves. Mm-hmm. So then you have a slight like delay on it and it's definitely helped. We uh, had to, to make some video for a talk I gave with my brother on a VR project we were working on. And um, it was so funny because his girlfriend wanted to help and she's like, oh, I can totally be the camera person. And we put the... Um, the headset on her and she's a person who like is very expressive and she talks like with her whole body and so, <laughs> so she'd be talking to us and then the headset would be like Wah. <laughs> and none of the footage was usable <laughs> I think I've had one actual game that's made me entirely sick and it's Windlands and it wasn't a VR game originally but they made it they just kind of ported it and the first button I hit was the jump button. And it's not just like a jump. It like launches you into the air. Oh, wow. And I'm like, whoop, there goes my stomach. Oh, no. And then like, okay, that's fine. Like, And then you're like, basically, like, you have two grappling hooks. And you're like swinging through trees and like swinging across the land. And it's so cool until you hit the ground and there's camera shake. Oh, and no. Like, Don't ever camera shake a VR headset. Like, oh, that's never okay. It makes your like, head feel like it's shaking. I almost fell over. I was standing oh. still. and like just about fell over from that. I'm like, Goodness. yep. I'm done with this. <laughs> so, but they also found a way to kind of stop the sickness was one, get rid of the camera shake. Mm-hmm. Two, you can put a cage around the person because having something that's like centered with you and following you yeah. and anchored to you helped a lot. Mm. And that's usually you never want to change someone's horizon because that can really make them sick. So it's like that as it's a really fine point of like, if it's anchored to you, how far is it from you? What is anchored to you? Is it a HUD? So Okay. That's so fascinating because like, we have first-person shooters, and they have subtitles and things like that. But because you're looking at a screen, you know that you're not like in that world, and there's nothing preventing you from thinking that. Whereas when you're in VR, uh, there's like the only thing you see is the VR, so mm-hmm. it it's really easy to think you're like actually in it. I guess even your mind will like trick yourself into thinking that. And I can see how people could get sick or confused from that because like there's nothing telling you otherwise. Uh, that's huh. That's something else. Yeah, like Skyrim VR, I think they fixed part of their issue. So it's like you had the, like in the regular version, you had the um, compass up top. Yeah. And I don't think like having, if I had that following my headset, I would oh. be really annoyed actually just to have like this bar in my like eyesight and like go away. Yeah. <laughs> and they put it on the floor. And so it's like, you can just look on the ground and it's like got your, it's surrounding oh, you. okay. And I think that definitely helped a lot. And a lot of their text is just like a quick pop up and then like it'll follow you, but then it goes away pretty quickly. Okay. So, mm-hmm. oh. And then the movement system makes you sick so i mean it's fine yeah. <laughs> the ui isn't the problem yeah <laughs> like our ui isn't making you sick but something else is but it's not the ui yeah. We're okay. <laughs> so don't blame our ui team <laughs> uh 
Uh, so you doing all this client work, doing some work on the side. Now you've done so much with VR. Is that maybe if you had like a, a dream personal project, would it be a big VR project? Would it be something else? What's the thing you want to do? I actually, aside from doing VR for clients, I have no interest in doing it for my like own personal yeah? projects. Mm. Like I really enjoy VR. I definitely do. It's just, this is going to sound bad. <laughs> <laughs> Don't put that in. We, we won't tell anybody. <laughs> um, it's just more... It is novelty to me. Like it is a very novel medium. And I think I enjoy learning it because I know this is where the industry is going. And I want this tool set to be able to work in this if like mm-hmm. need be, if I ever do switch like jobs anywhere and having the knowledge of like, if I do work for another client-based agency and they want, they have a VR client, I'm like, Hey, I can totally talk to you about this. But I think for me, like I am very much more interested in doing things that exist more just on a computer screen and not as a VR experience. Mm-hmm. Just because one, it's like I am a regular person and VR is still an entry to barrier for me. Yeah. yeah like yeah. all of my coworkers have their own headsets, but I haven't had in the last couple of years like $800 to drop on a headset. <laughs> right. So you talk with a little bit of reticence, almost like you're a little embarrassed that you're not like super into VR. But I think that the truth is, is like VR is another thing. It's not the thing that replaces the thing. Yeah. And right? it's, it's also like a really good thing to bring up. Like if you think about entertainment through the ages, like, when radio came out, you sell books. They never got replaced. When yeah. movies came out, you never got rid of radio. Like, yeah. <laughs> these things still exist. They just like enhance upon one another. And it's, it is, I do feel bad. It's like I've been to Unite and I've been like, I hung out with Alchemy for the weekend and I got to like talk with them. And it's like, they're all so hardcore, like VR. And like, even Unite was just so much VR. I do feel bad when I say like, yeah, I'm not like a hardcore VR person. Because it's like, it's, it's fun. It's, a field I want to learn. It's a field I enjoy learning, but it's not like my end all be all, you know? Yeah. 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 And so it's like, even my director is like hardcore VR. I'm like, like <laughs> if there were to be other like 2D, 2D games to come into pixel farm, I would have no problem like sitting down and making things for that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that perspective is really valuable. Like not to totally let you off the hook, <laughs> but like I have dealt with people, uh, um, clients who want VR projects and they fail because they don't, they don't understand the the context of it or you get somebody really, really excited and they don't realize the pitfalls. And so I think, I think you have a, a good perspective on, on what it's good for and the, and you've had to deal with the sort of rubber meets the road of it. Yeah. Like it's not all just like, you know, dreams and look into the future. You know? Yeah. And it's, like a lot of people just expect, like, I'm going to put Call of Duty on a headset. I'm like, you're not, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I think also it's just, my entire professional working career in games has been VR. It's mm-hmm. like, and a lot of it was originally like academic level VR. And so, I mean, it is really big now and it'll be big in the future, but we are still on the horizon of the technology. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. And there still needs to be room for, uh, for the rest of it. Right? Yeah. And like, if we've learned anything on this show, it's that, uh, you having a motivation to do something is important. So, uh, why don't you come up with your next big thing and we'll have you back to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that I can do. <laughs> That's our show. If you haven't already, subscribe to Nice Games Club in your favorite podcast app and be sure to give it a good review if you liked it or are nice like us. We really do need to know you're out there. So leave a review and tell all your friends too. Krista, will you leave a review and tell all your friends too? I will. <laughs> I will. I've been doing nothing but just like putting Joggernaut stuff out there for the next like for the last couple of weeks. So now I'll switch over to Nice Games. <laughs> so, aw, thanks. My Facebook's just a billboard. <laughs> We also want to hear directly from you, so follow us on Twitter and all the other things at Nice Games Club. Let us know how we're doing, send us your topics, and ask us your questions. 
Lastly, you can find out more about the show, your nice host, our nice guest, as well as get all the links and notes from this and other episodes at NiceGames.club. So until we start again, remember to play nice and make nice. If anyone's going to GlitchCon, I'll actually be on the VR panel for that. That would be really interesting to our listeners, but this episode won't be out in time. Oh, oh well. (laughs) (laughs) Hey guys, I was at GlitchCon. (laughs)